Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today, no surprise there. In moments, Chinzia Arutsa and Tithi Bhattacharya will explore a feminism for the 99%. And then at the bottom of the hour, Sam Stein will talk about how cities are planned with special attention to New York. Sheryl Sandberg, Hillary Clinton, and Pussy Hats made a certain kind of feminism famous, the feminism of the upper and upper middle class, which would be fine with the existing systems of power and hierarchy if only women held half the top slots. A different kind of feminism is represented by my first guests, Chinzi Arutsa and Tithi Bhattacharya. They, along with Nancy Fraser, are out with a new volume from Verso, Feminism for the 99%, a manifesto. It's a short, readable introduction to a far more radical view of the world. Chinzi Arutsa is an associate professor of philosophy at the New School, and Tithi Bhattacharya directs the Global Studies Program at Purdue. We're just a little past uh, International Women's Day. Uh, there were a bunch of marches and strikes around the world. Alas, uh, that passed us by mostly here in the United States. But uh, give us some sense of the scope of what happened uh, on International Women's Day. Yeah, this is Cinzia. I can uh, start. March 8 has been even bigger than last year when we had, for example, the impressive 5 million people strike in Spain. This year, for example, the most uh, conservative union in Spain declared 6 million on strike with uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, people demonstrating in the streets in various cities in Spain. Italy also had a general strike uh, with hundreds of of thousands of uh, workers uh, participating in mass demonstrations. Uh, Chile had another uh, strike, as well as Argentina. There were mass mobilizations in Brazil, uh, demonstrations in Mexico in more than uh, 10 cities. Uh, And in Europe, the movement also expanded to new countries, for example, Belgium and uh, Switzerland and Germany also organized women's strikes and, uh, and demonstrations. Not to speak of uh, Istanbul and Turkey, where, by the way, the women's uh, uh, demonstration was was attacked by the police, and uh, um, further mobilizations uh, all over Asia and also in Africa. So this was really an impressive, uh, immense day of struggle, of strikes, of mobilizations, and I think it should really dispel any doubt whatsoever about the fact that we are really in the middle of an incredibly powerful new feminist wave. Now, there are certain traditional types who say that the strike is about workplace struggles. And of course, the kind of feminism you're talking about rejects that narrow notion of what the strike is about. Tell us what the vision of a strike that you're, you're talking about is, like expanded beyond the workplace. Uh, this is Tithi. Um, this is the argument that was put forward to us when the first international women's strike unfolded in 2017, that the word strike could not be used as a woman's strike because strikes were necessarily in workplaces, so there couldn't be any strikes outside of workplaces. It is wrong on two counts. First of all, it is empirically wrong because, as you can see, uh, in the cases of Uh, what happened this year and has been happening for the past three years, that uh, these have been successful women's strike, which have actually managed to shut down both domestic labor that women perform outside of workplaces, uh, care work that women perform outside of uh, workplaces, as well as workplaces. So it has actually happened. So this argument in this current context actually makes absolutely no sense since it's happening. But there is a theoretical part to that that I want to add as well as to why it is that uh, this argument makes little sense uh, given 
what neoliberal capitalism has done. So in our book, Feminism for the 99%, the point that we make about neoliberalism is that it is not just a crisis of the economic system, it is actually a crisis of social reproduction. So in the sense that what neoliberalism has done over the last 40 years has actually attacked those very institutions and infrastructures that working class people and ordinary people need to remake their life. So for instance, healthcare, water, housing, fuel, food, these are all the ingredients for life making that neoliberalism has attacked. So it is not surprising that the response to uh, austerity and neoliberalism will be a response to protect these activities and these institutions. So many of the workplace strikes that we are seeing right now, teachers and nurses are precisely about protecting those kind of activities. But outside of workplaces, we see women leading, in fact, uh, fights for clean water, clean air, fights to collect uh, fuel from uh, forest lands, which have been privatized by international monetary agencies and so forth. This is a global revolt that the international women's strike is epitomizing or finally giving form to and coherence to what has become a generalized revolt against austerity led by women. There's a long tradition of valorizing men's work over what you know, people disparagingly refer to as women's work. Men's work is hard and, and involves money, and women's work is soft and caring and uh, done often out of love and often doesn't involve money in, in the same sense like a money wage. Uh, are we trying to revalue um, that, that hierarchy? Well, I'm going to start with that because that argument is so absurd if you think about what kind of work labor regimes uh, slave women uh, were forced to perform once they were unloaded from slave ships into the Caribbean and into the New World in general. The wonderful democracy of inhuman labor regimes were that, that it was applied equally to men and women. So the idea that women have never done hard work and men have is a patently historically untrue and actually a viciously obscuring idea. But there is some truth to the obverse of the idea in the sense that besides performing hard labor alongside of men, women have the double task of actually performing what traditionally is called care work inside the home and in the community. So, and again, I want to emphasize that it's not just inside the home that women perform care work. So, for instance, gathering of fuel, like I said, or water, which is care in a communitarian sense, is also performed by women. So I would say Far from women doing soft work, women actually perform this double uh, and these days often triple functions of hard work, care work, as well as emotional labor because lives um, of ordinary people have become so hard. So if I can uh, add something about uh, this issue of the unity of reproductive and productive work uh, in, uh, in the feminist mobilization and also what impact this has in terms of unions. I think uh, what, uh, you know, critiques of the women's strikes do not take into account, especially on the left, is that uh, they're not realizing what kind of process the feminist movement is actually putting in place by insisting on the unity of productive and reproductive labor. 
also in terms of reviving labor struggle and in terms of democratizing and radicalizing unions. So paradoxically, those who from the left criticize you know, the, the idea of feminist strikes take the position of the defense of the union bureaucracies rather than unions. They conflate union, unions uh, bureaucracies with unions members because what the movement is doing in a number of countries is precisely to pressure thanks to the participation of rank-and-file women unionists within the movement, they are pressuring their own unions to radicalize, to go on strike, to take into account uh, the specificity of uh, women's labor. And and also they are uh, raising the issue uh, that uh, uh, while in the last decades we have seen a monopoly of strikes by union leaderships, that are uh, very often not particularly interested in using this tool for uh, the interest of the working class. Uh, strikes are not the property or the monopoly of union bureaucracies. They are uh, the tool of the working class in struggle. And so this is what the feminist movement uh, uh, is doing at, at this moment. And by uniting the issue of struggles around social reproduction outside of the workplace and uh, inside the workplace, they are actually creating uh, the kind of social and political pressure that is necessary for uh, a a renewal of unions and for a renewal of uh, labor struggles. And this is uh, becoming evident, for example, in countries like uh, Spain or or Italy, where unions were pressured by rank and filers to go on strike. If we think back on uh, Marx's formulation of the the value of the wage, how the value of the wage is formed, it's whatever it requires to get the worker into the door of the factory uh, the next morning. You're uh, drawing on that, but you know, broadening the perspective considerably beyond uh, the monetary value of that, uh, of that wage. So there is a direct wage, which is in the monetary form, and there is an indirect wage, uh, which is that amount of, uh, of wealth produced by uh, workers that is uh, invested in uh, infrastructure, public services, uh, Uh, public uh, goods and so on. Class struggle has never been just around the direct wage alone. It has always been around uh, both forms of wage, which is a way to say also that it is is around life, because uh, the reason why uh, workers are interested in wages is that wages have to do with the quality of their life, with the sphere of needs and desires that they can be able to to satisfy or not. Uh, So from this viewpoint, actually, we are not really inventing much. This has always been the history of uh, of the workers' movement, and only very reductionist uh, tendencies within the uh, workers' movement have tended to focus just on the economic struggle within the workplace. So from this viewpoint, there is no uh, reinvention of the the will. What the feminist movement is uh, making apparent is the necessity of combining uh, the struggle on, uh, on, on two fronts together. Can I just add one little thing to that, that I think um, the, the union bureaucracy's um, argument and the sort of class reductionist argument on the wage is essentially about the wage itself in the most limited sense. I think Marxists have always argued and the working class movements have always shown that it is not about the wage, but it is what the two things. It's what the wage can buy and what the wage can insure. So what the wage can buy is food, shelter, clothing, but what the wage can insure is a reproduction 
of the next generation to live in some kind of dignity, right? So that's where your public schools, your hospitals, and your healthcare um, and your education come comes into play. And this was actually understood very clearly in the labor movement in the past, in in the sort of high points of class struggle. So, for instance. Uh, union songs uh, in this country has reflected that uh, very well. So, I mean, union songs are often about we are striking for loaves of bread or we are striking for pairs of shoes. So no one says we are striking for 10 more dollars. It's basically what the wage can ensure for a dignified working class life is what Marxists and the labor movement have always argued. So this sort of fetishization of workplace struggle is neither addresses the dictatorial hold that capitalism as a system holds over both the worker's life and the working conditions that allow the worker to live uh, or not live a, a dignified existence. That's the voice of Tethi Bhattacharya, author along with Chinzia Arutsa, whom we're also hearing from, and Nancy Fraser, whom we're not, of Feminism for the 99%, a manifesto just out from Verso. The tendency of vulgar patriarchal Marxists and the labor movement to overlook the non-wage sphere, um, it sort of reflects uh, the bias of capitalist society in that uh, it doesn't really pay much attention to or care about. It just assumes, uh, uh, takes for granted the sphere of nature, the social sphere, the domestic sphere that reproduces life um, before the monetary sphere. Um, and, and the kind of feminism that your manifesto is writing in favor of is, is trying to um, fight against that oversight or that marginalization of the non-monetary. There are two things to that. One is uh, that capitalism as a system always free rides, right? So it's not just free riding over workers outside of the workplace, but also free riding over uh, workers within the uh, workplace. So in other words, the basic premise of the system is that it will invest the least in the human person of the worker in order to get the most out of her. So that's the general premise of the system. And so it is not surprising then that it will try to pay as little as possible for the conditions that allow the worker to do the work. So, and it, its a approach to nature is exactly the same. As long as it can free ride on all the gifts of nature in order to transform them into profits, that's um, exactly uh, what it will do. But I think liberal feminists have focused as a solution to this problem. Liberal feminists have only focused on the sphere of bourgeois rights and bourgeois production. So for instance, liberal feminists are um, very much about fighting for abortion rights for, for women, which is great. They are also for equal wages for men and women, which is also great. But for feminists for the 99%, I think what we want to argue is that these are great issues to fight for, but they are the starting point of the struggle. So for instance, what good is a legal right to abortion if healthcare costs are skyrocketing and people can't even get to abortion clinics because of um, completely denuded economic circumstances? Why even fight for equal wages for both men and women if both of those uh, wages are abysmally low and incapable of reproducing a dignified life? So these kind of fights cannot be limited to the juridical limits that capital sets for us, which is kind of the limit that liberal feminists accept. But we need to expand that uh, struggle to make 
feminism and universal uh, struggle for an anti-capitalist future. Well, that kind of liberal feminism would be perfectly happy if uh, 250 CEOs of the Fortune 500 were women, but they have no problem with the CEO as such. That's correct. So this is a feminism that is about empowerment of the few. And really, uh, what in that kind of uh, word empowerment, we need to focus on the word power, because it is about the power of a few over the lives of the many. And it is very much a class feminism. You know, people talk about liberal feminism, bourgeois feminism, maybe more precise, but uh, it really is very much of a class bound worldview. This is what we write in, in the manifesto, that basically this is a, it's a class project and it is a, a project of uh, emancipation and equality between, uh, of women uh, within the capitalist class or uh, the uh, upper middle class. Absolutely. And of course, I mean, there, there are some uh, terms of demands and, and so on. Of course, we, we may also have uh, alliances or uh, struggles in common in terms of, for example, uh, fighting for uh, uh, formal rights. That's fine. But clearly, the kind of, uh, of, uh, of project that has been put forward by liberal feminism in these years has sold uh, what was a specific class project. So the project of, you know, the diversification of CEOs, of the management of the big companies, or more diversity in political institutions and uh, executive powers and so on. So this has been sold to all women, to the mass of, uh, mass of women, as uh, some form of uh, uh, liberation for everybody. The logic was a bit uh, similar to the trickle-down uh, economic logic. So if, if we have you know, more uh, women in uh, positions of power, this will automatically open more spaces uh, and grant more freedoms to the mass of women. But we know that this is absolutely not the case. Yeah, I never understood how that was supposed to work. Uh, me neither. Just to give an example of the... Uh, capacity for hegemony of this kind of uh, liberal feminism. The Italian uh, union, the FIOM, the, this is the union of metal workers, has uh, recently produced a, a document about women, so the women metal workers, where basically it endorses uh, precisely this view, this liberal view of feminism. And uh, the proposal here, there is that uh, having uh, more uh, women uh, in management in uh, uh, metallurgic factories and so on, uh, is something that uh, would change the dynamic within the factory, um, make uh, progress for uh, the women workers and for their needs and so on. It is absolutely unclear how this would work and how this should work, especially when, for example, uh, uh, if we want to really address uh, the needs and demands of women workers within factories and so on, most of these demands actually in entail uh, a reduction of profits, for, uh, for the various companies, because uh, uh, we are speaking about uh, parental leave, uh, equal pay, and so on and so on. So it is unclear why a woman manager who clearly will have most interest of making profits for her, her company would somehow magically produce better conditions of life for uh, her workers. Now, you uh, argue in the book that the kind of feminism you're in favor of, the feminism for the 99%, has to be anti-racist and anti-imperialist. I'm sure some liberal feminists would say, what does that have to do with gender? So uh, explain that to us. I don't see how it is possible to separate gender uh, 
from race if we want to have an analysis of gender that is not that doesn't reproduce the kind of uh, false universals of the past so it doesn't doesn't address the condition of uh, only a sector of uh, of, uh, of women particularly white women as the condition of all women so just to give uh, some concrete examples of why it is so important to speak about racism and, uh, and imperialism in the manifesto, we mentioned the way in which uh, immigration policies have a direct impact on uh, migrant women, even in terms of gender violence. We know for a fact that uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of women are uh, every day raped in detention centers. So uh, when we speak about gender violence, uh, how can we not speak about the violence of these uh, xenophobic policies of uh, migration policies or to stay in the United States? How can we not speak about the gender violence that the police acts uh, uh, against uh, racialized women, especially black women, or the, the violence that black and racialized women suffer within the prison, the, the prison system? So these phenomena are so interconnected, so internally related, they are not separate phenomena, that it is impossible to address uh, uh, one without addressing the others. And when one tries to do this uh, in the way in which some liberal feminists uh, may tend to do, uh, the outcome is very often the uh, perpetuation of uh, racist uh, and uh, or xenophobic policies. One brilliant example of this is some kind of liberal European feminism that has endorsed Islamophobic uh, policies in their uh, countries. So, for example, various bans on the veil and so on in the name of women's rights, precisely because they were not taking into account uh, the way in which uh, uh, sectors of women, in this case Muslim women, are racialized and discriminated within uh, Western countries. So I think one of the things that um, I want to add to that is we need to take the word diversity very seriously because the word diversity is actually an act of necromancy. It actually makes previous struggles and practices such as feminist struggles, anti-racist struggles, open border struggles, and turns them in this act of necromancy into talking about diversity. And whenever we talk about diversity, it is always the diversity within the ruling class. If you look around the world, for the first time, I think the ruling class is as diverse as it has ever been, okay, in, in under capitalism, okay? This is no longer a rule of hetero uh, white men, uh, although they are uh, the majority, uh, th th that is um, undoubtedly true, but it is not just them. Okay, so for in, in instance, in India, I get email notifications that eight Indian women have now become billionaires on the Forbes list. And most of these women uh, billionaires in India are from, again, families that have ancestral wealth and has been part of the ruling class for, uh, for centuries. So we've uh, we see a diverse ruling class in terms of women. Kamala Harris is a fantastic ex example in the United States running for presidency right now, who actually rejoiced and advocated to lock up uh, parents of color in order to solve the problem of truancy of their children in, in schools. So we have a diverse ruling class, which is ruling over, presiding over uh, neoliberal austerity in various forms around the planet, and using this argument of diversity to say that this is actually a feminist or an anti-racist project. And what that does is it tries to, on the one hand, 
decapitate the actual uh, power of anti-racist and feminist struggles. And thankfully, uh, recent movements uh, like Black Lives Matter and Palestine and, and the feminist movement has exposed it for what it is. But on the other hand, it also creates the conditions for the rise of the far right. So now the far right can attack working class and feminist struggles by saying this is feminism gone wild because we are for the real working class. We are not for the Hillary's. We are not for the Kamala Harris. We are the actual authentic uh, working class. And so 40 years of neoliberal austerity and this absolutely ghoulish notion of diversity has both created this far right assertion, but also has attempted thankfully, uh, right now, uh, not very successfully, to demobilize actual struggles for anti-racist and anti-imperialist uh, futures. That was Tithi Bhattacharya. Before her, we heard from Chinzi Arutsa. They, along with Nancy Fraser, are the authors of Feminism for the 99%, a manifesto just out from Verso. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Glass City by War and Women. Their lead singer, Shauna Potter, was on this show in October 2017. Next, the class angle on urban planning. Contrary to appearance and ideology, most cities are intensely planned, and gentrification is not a spontaneous phenomenon. Here to elaborate on that with particular attention to New York is Sam Stein. He's a graduate student in geography at the City University of New York and teaches at Hunter College. His book, Capital City, Gentrification in the Real Estate State, is just out from Verso. And it's pure coincidence that both segments of today's show are built around two new books from Verso. Samuel Stein. Let's just do a little history of planning to start. Planning has always existed. There's never been cities without planning. Everybody does planning, whether it's at the government level or uh, even the individual or family level. Um, But it becomes a profession in the late 19th century, most often identified coming out of Europe and then coming to the U.S. in the early 20th century. The roots of it are pretty interesting. There's a mix of kind of bourgeois social reformers and uh, radicals, often with anarchist things. So even though we think of it as a function of the state, a lot of its originators uh, were looking for kind of anarchist utopian ways of undoing the the divide between the city and the country and trying to come up with um, a better way of shaping space that was more egalitarian, more environmentally friendly, Um, would undo with some of the gender dynamics that were built into capitalism. 
So there was always this, this radical strand that was looking to completely remake society in a way that was not driven by capitalist firms and the, the logic of the market. And then there was a reformist strand, which was trying to do what we could to shape space to maximize profit making off of the land itself to ensure a stable workforce and a uh, in-control state. You see urban planning arising uh, in a lot of times in response to radical mobilizations of the working class, either in support of those mobilizations or in trying to put them down. To wax Foucaultian for a second, there's there are elements of population control about it, right? Definitely. Again, Foucaultian thinking, it's the state seeing the populace and mapping it and counting it and understanding it in order to control it. And there is sort of a, a power play in terms of creating a rationality that people feel like they have to then work within. So it decides, or the planners decide what is a rational urban order, and then people contest that, but often within the logic that the state has created. Uh, there are a couple of contradictions you write about that are really foundational to the planning game. Uh, one is uh, the nature of property, uh, social versus private. Do you talk about that contradiction? Yeah, and property is the, the form that space takes under capitalism in the, in the urban context. And it's socially produced in the sense that its value comes largely from public investments in infrastructure. And it has to do, it's relational in terms of uh, its value has to do with what it's close to. And that closeness is made possible, again, by state infrastructure and transportation and transit. So the space is socially produced, but it's privately controlled. It's owned by an individual, a firm, or even a real estate investment trust, but it's privately controlled. So that tension is one of the, the leading paradoxes about the public function of urban planning in a private land market. There are tensions there because uh, real estate capitalists know they need some kind of zoning, but they also don't like being told what to do. So how does that work out? Right. I mean, kind of all capitalists demand planning on the one hand and also bristle at it. They don't like the idea that they should need planning. They don't like the idea of the government telling them what to do. On the other hand, their land is worthless without government intervention of one sort or another. And then, of course, there's there's the people, there's labor who have all sorts of demands of planners um, that are in contradiction or in contrast to what the capitalists are demanding. But what's interesting is that different forms of capitalists make different and often conflicting demands of the state. So industrial capitalists uh, might bristle at environmental regulation, but call for interventions that bring down the cost of land and especially the cost of housing, because they don't want their workers to be paying so much to their landlords that they suddenly start demanding higher wages of their bosses. On the other hand, the flip side, you have the reverse from real estate capital. Real estate capital might want environmental regulations that ensure that their land continues to be profitable or that makes polluted land suddenly developable. On the other hand, they don't want anything that will restrict their ability to collect rents from the land. So there's a tension there that planners are in the uncomfortable position of uh, figuring out. And you mentioned uh, industrial versus real estate, guys. Uh, that contradiction was once pretty intense, but uh, now the industry is pretty much gone from places like New York City. Um, it's the real estate guys have a, fee, a free fire zone. Right. Uh, fire, uh, as in yes, you know, right. <laughs> that was unintentional. finance insurance yeah. and real estate, too. Yeah, it's a free fire zone. That's perfect. Yeah, that's that's kind of one of the main arguments that I'm trying to make historically in my book is that Deindustrialization, which is not the collapse of industry, but moving it out of the center cities 
created a huge amount of space for real estate, it, like literal space where real estate could take over formerly industrial areas and also political space where it could make all the demands on behalf of capital. Um, so if you no longer have this tension between industrial capital and real estate capital, then the demands on planners are really just coming in that way that uh, is, is calling for things that will raise the value of land and things that will raise the value of property, things that will bring in higher rent payers and push out lower rent payers. Now, another contradiction, of course, is uh, democracy. Well, it reproduces itself many times in our political life, democracy versus capitalism. Yeah, and, and so these ideas, just to give credit where it's due, come from a guy named Richard Fogelsong, who is looking at the development of capitalist urban planning. And yeah, he called this the capitalist democracy contradiction. The idea that in a formal democracy, a place where large numbers of people can vote, the urban planning system has to be open to intervention from the public, but work on behalf of capitalists. Open enough that the public believe that they have a say in it, but closed enough that capital is secure in the fact that they will get what they need. So you get things like city planning commissions, which are public bodies that make uh, votes on certain kinds of planning interventions, but more often than not, they're controlled by capitalist interests. And for a long time, that was a mix of industrial and real estate. And at this point, it's really overwhelmingly real estate capitalists who are on the city planning commissions that claim to speak for the entire public. But they have to go these, through these charades of pretending to listen to public input. But uh, most of the time, they've already made up their mind. Yeah, and they are really elaborate. So in New York City, we have something called the Uniform Land Use Review Process, which takes months and months and months and is preceded by months and months and months of study and almost always results in more intensive development. They use up public participation and spit out higher real estate values. Yeah, well, you mentioned parks, which is an interesting issue because you know, everyone loves parks. They seem like a great amenity in a crowded city. Uh, on the other hand, real estate likes them because they raise property values. Like Central Park, for example, you know, the, the Ur example of that. Um, how should we think about this, the public amenity versus um, the, the, the private real estate game? Right. Of course, everybody needs and wants uh, open space of some sort in their city. And that has been a central demand of working class movements in cities for a very long time. Now, when we get new parks in New York and in many other places, it's not just that it benefits people and it benefits real estate. It's actually part of the deal that uh, enriches real estate in the first place. So cities will um, make a new area developable for real estate and they'll ask that the, the developers create a public park or sometimes a private park as part of that deal. But in the first place, they're giving over huge amounts of public value and then asking for something in return, which is the park. But by that logic, the city just gets more and more and more expensive. And the people who live nearby probably won't have the opportunity to enjoy that park. Instead, the much higher rent paying or much higher condo value buying uh, new residents are going to be the ones who enjoy it. The real problem here is the private land market, which translates public benefits like parks and open space into higher land values, which are then translated back to us in the form of higher housing costs. So until we get some sort of control over the private land market, ideally socializing the private land market and getting rid of land as a commodity as such, um, we're going to be stuck with this problem. A lot of your book is about gentrification, which is a word on many, many lips these days, all across not just the United States, but really around the world, many cities around the world experiencing very similar processes of gentrification. Are there some structures underlying some commonalities 
to it uh, around the world? Why is it such a, a global phenomenon over the last several decades? It started out as a kind of peculiar neighborhood phenomenon that was happening in particular places, and now it's been generalized into uh, this global urban process. Notably, it's not happening everywhere, and it can't happen everywhere. The world cannot be gentrified. There has to be spaces of disinvestment as well as spaces of investment. But yes, there is gentrification happening in places all over the world. And I would argue that the force we should be looking at is the concentration of global capital into real estate above other forms of investment. Um, we now have something like $217 trillion invested into real estate. And there's many different forms of real estate, but 75% of that investment is in housing. So that's a majority of the world's assets, 60%. So when you have so much of the world's money moving from other forms of investment and into real estate, the result is going to be gentrification. And I would argue that the state, maybe we can pluralize that, states, have been reorienting their orientation to planning uh, in order to take advantage of that maximum investment in real estate and to lure that investment to their particular location over others. So you get a, a competitive or you could call it entrepreneurial aspect of cities where they're fighting with one another for real estate investment. And the most obscene recent version we've seen of that is the Amazon debacle, where Amazon said, we'll come to one city who's going to give us the best deal. And cities all over the country uh, pledge to cut their uh, tax rates, to, to give subsidies, to offer limited labor and environmental regulations in order to bring in the, the wealthiest corporation in the world. Gentrification has long been associated with artists and the arts. It's an inter interesting um, relationship. We want to you know, look at the early example of Soho, which became first an arts district, and now it's uh, you know hedge fund guys and the global um, one-tenth of one percent. But you know, looking at what has been going on around downtown Brooklyn, too, using the BAM corridor and arts as a way of luring uh, gentrification. Why the arts? Why are they such a key part of this gentrification process? City planners have figured out that artists bring in uh, not just cultural capital, but just regular old capital into cities. And it's not necessarily the artists themselves, it's the investment that follows them. So once a space is coded as a place for artists, suddenly those hedge fund guys uh, are, are interested in it. Usually there's several mediating populations between the artists and the hedge fund guys, but uh, eventually it gets there. It's not all artists is the other thing to note. Like working class areas always have artists who, have, who are themselves working class and people of color and have lived in these neighborhoods for a very long time. Um, but it's once white artists who maybe move from someplace else to those areas start showing up uh, that the real estate industry starts taking note. And planners have figured this out, and so they will rebrand uh, disinvested areas as art spaces so that artists will move in, sometimes do the sweat equity of rebuilding old buildings, possibly old manufacturing areas that have been deindustrialized, often through the hand of the state. So the artists come in and do that work, and then the real estate industry can benefit off of it for cheap. But it's important to, to recognize the role of the state in this, sometimes in rezoning areas, sometimes in creating tax abatements for the transition of spaces into uh, places for larger scale arts production than was there before. So it's not that the artists somehow magically summon capital, it's that uh, the state creates spaces to opportunistically use artists 
to bring in the real estate industry. I'm speaking with Sam Stein, author of Capital City, Gentrification in the Real Estate State, just out from Verso. They've got that down to a process. You know, the uh, I was in a gallery in Bushwick, or a gallery building in Bushwick a couple of years ago, and all the uh, philanthropists, the foundations, individuals I saw on the wall, you know, I can remember from five and ten years earlier. It's like they've got a playbook now for um, how to how to gentrify a neighborhood using edgy artists. Yeah, they've certainly figured it out, and they've also figured out that artists need to be around each other. You know, like a lot of industries, there's an agglomeration effect where artists don't like to be alone. They want to be with other artists and inspired by them and contribute to each other's work. But that uh, critical mass of artists can then draw the attention of the real estate industry who knows how to profit off of them. We've also seen a real estate first artist gentrification happening in, in the South Bronx. And I think this has been happening elsewhere, too. There's a developer named Keith Rubenstein who bought up some land uh, in the severely disinvested South Bronx, um, actually threw a party in one of these spaces called the Bronx's Burning, which is pretty disgusting. And he had a, a car that had been shot up and uh, trash cans on fire and invited all these artists. And so in his new spaces, he's giving over parts of it to artists to show their work. So it's not even that artists are you know, coming to this neighborhood and gentrifying it. The developer is saying, hey, artists, I'll give you free space for a while And then I'm going to start charging a huge amount of rent once my gentrification attempt is successful. And there are artists that live in the South Bronx who are actively organizing and saying, no, artists, let's boycott this. This is not in our benefit and it's not in the benefit of the people we care about. And we should make it clear that the process of gentrification is sometimes presented the market process itself. It's just a force of nature. You can't hold it back. It's like, you know, the sunrise or gravity. It's just, it just is, and we have to surrender to it. But always, these sorts of real estate processes are led by the state in working in conjunction with private capital, right? There's nothing spontaneous about this. Nothing at all, no. And you can go back to the, the very, very early stages of gentrification and see the hand of the state as well as some of the bigger corporate forces in an area involved. So it's not like it was this perfectly organic process that has now been taken over by the state. The state had its hand in this from the very beginning. And the fact that it happens in some places and not others, the fact that it happens at some times and not others, should be enough to, to show that it's not an inevitable thing that will happen everywhere. And if it's not an inevitable thing that will happen everywhere, then we can think about what else we might want instead of gentrification. You and I are both familiar with what's been going on in New York, but uh, the kinds of processes we're discussing happen many, many places across the country, right? This, this conjunction of, of private real estate capital with state planning bodies. Yeah, and I think it happens in ways that are both familiar and different in different places. But one of the, the key things to note is, like I said before, it doesn't happen everywhere. It can't happen everywhere. But that won't stop planners everywhere from trying. So in hyper-invested cities like New York, like San Francisco, like L.A., you might see planners um, trying to keep housing and property and land values ever rising upward because their entire budgetary structure runs on the assumption that uh, things will always move in that direction. And when they start to dip even a little bit, a whole lot of chaos starts to ensue. But then you have places that are not really gentrifying where there is low land values and a whole lot of landlord abandonment of properties. In those places, planners often also are pushing gentrification as the solution. So where land values are low, planners are trying to get them high. 
where land values are high, planters are trying to keep them high and nudge them ever upward. So uh, even though the process is not universal, the attempt at gentrification in the name of good planning often is. We should also emphasize the fact that, you know, in New York City, we see this, but it's true everywhere. You know, a lot of urban America is run by Democrats. You know, people think that Republicans is a real business party, but uh, gentrification is really a bipartisan affair. Uh, the kinds of planning um, initiatives we're talking about are really bipartisan affairs. So, you know, let's look at the, uh, the case study of New York and compare the Bloomberg years to uh, de Blasio. What are the similarities? What are the differences? It's a really excellent case study because we've had these two mayors with two um, so clearly identifiably different personas. So for those who don't know, Michael Bloomberg is a billionaire, came out of the worlds of finance and media. I'm not sure if he calls himself a technocrat, but he's the kind of person who would uh, and has been um, a Republican and independent. I believe he recently became a Democrat, but generally uh, he's a conservative. We should say he's a very good technocrat. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's good at what he does. Sure, I don't like what it is, but that wasn't my problem with him. A less effective technocrat is uh, Bill de Blasio, um, who would not call himself a technocrat. He would call himself a progressive. And he frames everything that he does in the language of combating wealth or income inequality. And some of the things that he does actually do combat income inequality, such as raising the minimum wage. We've got universal pre-K in New York City now. We've got uh, mandatory sick days for most businesses. These are um, actual improvements over the Bloomberg era. But when you look at issues around housing and land use and planning, there is quite a bit of continuity between what these two actually did, even though there's a great difference between how they talked about it. So in both cases, they charge their planners with incentivizing real estate development in low-income, majority people of color areas. And they did that in the Bloomberg era under the banner of producing a luxury city. So getting rid of gritty working-class neighborhoods, replacing them with glittering new skyscraper districts. And the idea was we welcome the rich and they will pay their taxes, and we'll use those taxes to good use. The irony is a lot of those new developments were built with tax abatements or tax breaks that ensure that that money doesn't actually come into the city coffers. Under de Blasio, you have the same kind of development, but being pitched as some sort of equitable challenge to the old mode, even though it's more or less the same. So de Blasio has been upzoning majority people of color, working class neighborhoods that either have not yet gentrified. Upzoning means uh, allowing greater density. That's right. Well, and not just density, but uh, greater real estate investment. Raising the amount that you can build on a particular lot creates huge amounts of value for whoever owns that lot. So creating great amounts of wealth out of thin air by the state for private landowners for the purpose of building up usually more housing but notably not always, and I'll get to that in a moment. And the idea is when you build up new housing, we're going to make some of that affordable. Building up these actually affordable neighborhoods in order to get a small amount of new affordable housing and in the process making the entire neighborhood more expensive becomes the main uh, housing and planning priority of the de Blasio era. And I said before, sometimes but not always housing, it's notable that the one major neighborhood rezoning or changing of the zoning rules that de Blasio pushed forward that was not in a working class area 
was Midtown East, and that was a commercial rezoning. So it didn't even bring any uh, affordable housing to an expensive neighborhood because it only affected commercial buildings. Every other neighborhood rezoning has brought in more intensive development, more expensive development to areas of the city that real estate was either just beginning to be interested in or had been ignoring. So in the name of creating affordable housing, de Blasio is gentrifying working class neighborhoods. In both the Bloomberg and the de Blasio case, you have this paradigm where whatever the planning problem, the solution is or must include luxury development. And finally, how do we get a handle on this? Is there a way to democratize this planning process, open it up to popular scrutiny and control? There are all sorts of ways that we could be doing things differently. There are ways we can do things differently within the current mode of production and form of state that we have. We could be changing the priorities of urban planning to attack speculation rather than promote it, which is the default setting. We could be controlling the rising rents and creating public housing. Instead, we're doing very much the opposite. It's going to take organized movements of people, especially organized movements of tenants and low-income homeowners, to challenge the urban planners to challenge and to challenge the, the politicians. The system is not going to self-correct. If the, the bottom starts to fall out of the market, planners' reactions is going to be to restoke the market to try to get those land and property values back up to welcome back the speculators, to, to redo what they had done before and rework their magic. So it's going to take organized movements to challenge that logic and to put forward alternatives. Planners often want to work in a different way than they do. They often get involved in urban planning because they believe in alternatives to free market capitalism. But once they're in the job, it becomes very hard to do anything that the politicians who appoint their bosses don't want. And the politicians who appoint their bosses are almost, money, almost always getting a good share of their money from the real estate industry. The only way to change this is organized and militant movements against gentrification planning and for a different mode of planning um, that puts people's needs before that of whoever happens to own the land that they live on. And to get to that point, I mean, it's really important to underscore the fact that the processes that are undergoing we're undergoing now are not spontaneous and natural. They're, they're the product of human intention, human agency, uh, and not just uh, the natural evolution of, of urban space. Yeah, and, and a very long-term project at that. If you we look back at the, the work of Robert Fitch showing just about 100 years of pushing for this mode of planning, which has been successful in the very long term, we can now see in pushing out industrial production from the city and welcoming in real estate capital. So if this stuff has been planned, then something else could be planned instead. Uh, the planners could be working in a very different way. The state could be reoriented around protecting people instead of protecting property. But it's, uh, it's certainly not going to happen on its own. That was Sam Stein, author of Capital City, Gentrification in the Real Estate State, just out from Verso. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of a new song by the Mekons, Lawrence of California. It's an early release from a full album that will be out later this month. Till next week, bye.